That's why so many founders in the Valley are so exhausted because they're carrying everything. And somehow they've got this idea that unless they come to somebody and say, hey, I could use some help here, they're going to appear weak. That's just broken. So Carol, Robin, it is just a pleasure to have you here. You and I have known each other for four or five years and you are in the center and a central force in this high impact leaders in tech, helping people think through interpersonal skills and startups and technology. And you've been at Stanford and we want to dig into your background today. And I'm so glad to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm just so pleased to be on it and honored. Thank you. And so you have for many years taught along with David Bradford, a course known as Touchy Feely at the GSP that originally called Interpersonal Dynamic. Mm -hmm. And it is the most popular course that the school has ever seen. And it's had a dramatic impact on almost everyone who's gone through it. Everyone that I know from the GSP said it was their favorite course. And there's so much to learn there. And it's not a coincidence that everyone says the same thing. So, you know, so we often talk around here about how language is the heart of all things. I'm just curious, how did you feel when you heard Interpersonal Dynamics being called touchy-feely? Were they calling it that before you got there or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they were already calling it that. And I thought that the fact that the students had named it something that was theirs was what mattered. Less than that they had named what it, they had named it. But the fact that it had reached the status of getting its own name, you know, that was made up by the students. I loved that. What's more, and, you know, I have over the years, I've had to say, you know, it's a lot more about getting in touch with feelings than about touching. <laughs> and what I really appreciate about it is that the emphasis is on the soft skills. The name implies the soft skills that are at the core of its success. And in fact, I think the reason that thousands of alums for decades have called it the most transformational experience of their GSB time is precisely because they've learned that from a professional point of view, people do business with people. So until they learn how to get that part right, they're going to be limited in their professional success. But beyond that, they also come back and talk about how the course saved their marriage, how it helped them reconcile with their brother who they hadn't talked to for 10 years, how it has impacted the way in which they parent. So I think the course has had this huge transformational effect beyond what it has done for them as leaders. It's made them fuller, whole people and therefore better leaders. And if we're doing all this work to create in the world, that's one thing. If we're getting all this money, that's another thing. But if we don't actually have those relationships that are meaningful to us, then what's the point of it at all? Absolutely. And that's the appeal. Is that why it was oversubscribed so much? Well, I think it was oversubscribed because what students discovered when they took the course, I mean, they got a bunch of really good skills and competencies, but they also discovered parts of themselves that they either had kept hidden, that they thought they had to keep hidden. You know, when we get into why is this especially meaningful for startup founders, boy, how many startup founders spend their life figuring out how to spin their image, how to answer every question with we're crushing it. And, you know, what these G SB MBAs discovered was that they had a presented image, a persona that was what they normally led with. And when they allowed themselves to be more known and seen, not only were they more compelling and appealing and influential, but they also were freer and happier. And, and 
that experience was so profound for them. And of course, you know, it's a flywheel like any other flywheel. The more they talked about it as alums, the more students who came. By the time I left, I don't know if this specific number is correct, but I was told that more than 50% of the students who applied to the GSB said they preferred to come to Stanford because of this course. So you've got this new book out now. The main idea, the core idea is just to help people build exceptional relationships, which is deceptively simple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a sentence, which is just a few words, but there's a lot underneath that. Well, and of course, if it was that easy, we'd all have tons of exceptional relationships. And also, we'd be able to turn any relationship we want into something that feels exceptional. And how many people feel that way? Not very many. Right. And so from the book, let me just quote this. An exceptional relationship is one in which we can be honest with each other and trust each other and can productively resolve differences and disagreements. It's a relationship where we're each committed to the other's growth and development as well as to our own. And so why do we not think this way all the time? I mean, and why is this important? I think we've been socialized not to think about this this way all the time, particularly in business. I think it starts early and then it gets reinforced. We create these mental models, how we're supposed to show up in the world to be, quote, successful, especially successful business people. What would be your first prize that people would get out of reading this book? How are they transformed by reading this book? Well, people in general or startup founders in particular? Let's go with startup founders just to keep it on topic here. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I used to teach at the GSB and I teach at Leaders in Tech is that the question that every leader should ask themselves is why should somebody follow me? Most of the time, people learn about leadership in academic settings and in workshops and through programs by studying what other leaders have done that worked or didn't work. And that's a perfectly good way to learn about leadership. But I happen to think that an equally, if not more powerful way to learn is for each leader to sit in that question, why would somebody follow me? And by the way, that is not an easy question to answer if you're really going to be willing to sit in it. And so one of the things I would hope people would, you know, leaders would walk away from with the book is a better understanding of these two antenna that we talk about in the book, one of which is very tuned to what's going on for me inside of me. And the other one, which is very attuned to trying to pick up signals from you and having them work together towards something productive. And I would argue that leaders who work on fine-tuning those antenna and learn to have them talk to each other, no easy feat, become what we call referent figures, people that others want to be more like, people that others admire, people that others are influenced by. And by the way, what would make me a referent figure and why people would follow me might be very different than why people would follow you. But at the core, we have to be real we have to be willing to allow ourselves to be known. We have to create environments where other people feel safe, that they can be more known. We have to learn how to have conflict that's productive, and we have to be invested in each other. That is a wonderful list, and I know a lot of us seek to behave that way in our lives. Can you help me and other startup founders understand why we see so many examples of people who aren't like that, who appear to be winning? Mm -hmm. meaning they would be the diametrically opposed opposite of what you just discussed. We would include Travis from Uber. We would include perhaps even Steve Jobs from Apple. Absolutely. How do we unpack that? So this was one of the big battles I always had when I was still at the GSB, which was that my students would hold up folks like that and say, well, but how do you reconcile what you're saying with them? You know, my answer is twofold, at least twofold. First of all, 
I think it takes somebody very different to have the right product at the right time in the right place and make a big success out of it than a person that requires a different set of skills and a different kind of person than a person who wants to build something that's sustainable and that will outgrow them. And even more important, that won't become dependent on them to survive. So regrettably, there are a lot of functional, but nonetheless narcissistic leaders (laughs) that have made it big because what is required is a lot of willingness to take risks. Now, I would argue that a person who's willing to take risks interpersonally, along with a person who's willing to think outside the box and really create some of the incredibly wonderful things that are being created in the Valley are the people who are going to ultimately really win. It depends how we define winning. Yeah. Is it just about making a bunch of money? Well, you know, I didn't set out to write a book or teach a course that was going to help people make a lot of money. I did teach a course and I'm really committed to getting a book out into the world that will help people live more meaningful, fulfilled lives. And if that's how you define success, then this is for you. So continuing just unpacking this for startup founders, you know, look, running a startup, there's lots of hard conversations. You're building something from nothing. You need to have this impossible balance of world-bending confidence with also having humility and vulnerability and authenticity so that you can iterate and grow and change your product as well as your team and and on and on. So you need to be a salesperson, a visionary, a listener, a learner. Yeah, Superman or woman. Superwoman, right? And of course, a lot of these things feel like they're in conflict. And you know, if we could just come up with some scenarios that we see founders have, maybe we could just talk through some of them, you know, the frameworks of which are in your book, letting listeners maybe get the benefit of a little one-on-one session with you. You can be their competitive advantage. So you said earlier that startup founders are always spinning themselves, always trying to answer, we're crushing it. What would you coach a new startup founder to say when someone casually asks, how are things going? So I'll role play with you a little bit, you know, Hey, I'm a co-founder. Ask me how things are going at Leaders in Tech. That's right. You're running this Leaders in Tech, which we should get into as well. So how are things going at Leaders in Tech? Well, James, I'll tell you, it's been a hell of a year. We've had some big wins and man, have we had some opportunities for growth. We, like everybody else, have had to pivot. We have had to dig deep to find why we're doing this and recommit to our own sense of mission. And, you know, there are things that I'm enormously proud of, and there's some things I would do differently. And it's all one big, fun ride at times that I want to just get off of. That is a very good description of many people's situations, isn't it? And that type of balanced approach opens up a more meaningful conversation for me. Right. I have an opportunity now to be more authentic with you. The closer I hold my cards to my vest, the closer you're going to hold yours to yours. And no relationship's going to get deepened in that. You know, you might have to pick and choose carefully who you do that with, don't you? Oh, yeah. I'm not advocating, by the way, just tell everybody everything. We have a heuristic in the book that I think is particularly useful. We call it the 15% rule, which is think of three concentric circles. The circle in the middle is the zone of safety, which is where you don't think twice about what you're saying. The circle on the outside is called your zone of danger, where you can't imagine saying that to somebody. And the zone in the middle is called the zone of learning. And by the way, that's the only way we learn is to step outside our comfort zone. If you've ever skied, you know you don't learn by going to the double black diamond first. You start on the bunny slope. But if you stay on the bunny slope, you never become a better skier either. Now, the same thing applies to relationships. I used to tell my students, no risk, no reward. You got to take some risk, but you can't take too big a risk. So then they used to say, but Carol, the minute I'm outside my safety zone, I'm like terrified that I've gone past the learning zone and into the zone of danger. And so then 
you know, we would say, why don't you try 15% outside your comfort zone? Just a little bit. It's funny for startup founders, we are trying to gather resources and resources come to a new startup when the resources have confidence. And those resources can be employees, could be capital, could be PR, could be. And so how are people going to have confidence in you? They need to hear that it's safe to go in the water. And when you're in a community, in any tech startup community, whether it's Silicon Valley or other ones, people do talk, they whisper. Yes. And so you have to kind of control the narrative in order so that you can bring the resources so you can make something out of nothing. And so I think there is network gravity and there is network math that causes us to all say, oh, we're crushing it. Absolutely. Except that after a while, everybody knows nobody's telling the truth. <laughs> So aren't we better off? And that's why I'm saying the concept of appropriate authenticity might be worth talking about for a moment. So if I'm the VP of marketing and that's the third quarter in a row that our market share has dropped drastically and I have no idea what's going on, I don't stand in front of all the troops and say, well, I have no idea what's going on. I'm not sure I should be your VP of marketing. That's authentic and that's vulnerable, but that's not very effective. <laughs> the flip side, by the way, is everybody knows market share has dropped for the last three months in a row. For me to get up there and say, hey, everybody, it's okay. No big deal. That's also not very effective. The option is to say, hey, you know what? Third month in a row, we've dropped market share. Really sucks. And there are a lot of potential reasons. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm pretty sure that together we will figure it out. That doesn't sound weak. Sounds right on the boundary of authenticity both ways and offering path forward, offering real leadership. It's almost interesting. If you can be authentic, it almost triggers yourself to be a better leader, to come up with better solutions. Absolutely. And by the way, flip side of it, which is I've got this covered or I don't admit any mistakes, all that does, it goes back to some of the leaders that we've seen that we were talking about earlier. It creates a bigger and bigger power differential between you and others in the organization. And the minute the power differential gets bigger and bigger, people stop telling you the truth. I can think of very few things that are more important for a leader to do than to build an environment where people tell each other the truth. Particularly for startups, because nobody really knows what to do. You're just making it up. Absolutely. And if I'm afraid that if I tell you the truth, you know, you're going to fire me as opposed to say, well, let's figure out what we can learn from that, then I'm not going to tell you the truth. Yeah, that's interesting that they tell you less the truth, the more your power differential becomes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real mathematical structure there, isn't there? And that ties into disclosure too, because the more I disclose, the more vulnerable I make myself, the lower the power differential. And the harder it is for you to make up stories about me. That's another, you know, my name is Carol, C-A-R-O-L-E. I have this list of Carolian principles. <laughs> and one of my Carolian principles is in the absence of data, people make stuff up. And since I don't know your listeners, I use stuff, but usually I use a stronger word. But, you know, if you don't want people to make up stuff, then you better tell them what you want them to know. And that's not just about the business. It's also about you. Right. You use the word weak. A leader might not want to appear weak. I think a lot of people wonder if they're good enough. Mm -hmm. They wonder if they're going to make it or make the grade or mm -hmm. whether they'll be allowed to stay with the pack or to be part of the pack. And they don't want to show weakness because they feel that that would disqualify them. Is that true? Is that why we're so obsessed with not looking weak? Well, I think we've got a few different concepts kind of smurgled highly technical term in our brain. We tend to think that vulnerability, authenticity, and weakness are all somehow tied together. 
And I would argue that if you're willing to be vulnerable, you're probably pretty strong. That'd be the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is paying attention to the language we use is important. Like you said this earlier, language creates reality. And so if I think telling you I don't know is going to result in you seeing me as weak, then I'm not going to tell you I don't know. And who's going to win? But if I see myself as saying, I don't have the answers, but my job is to make sure we find the best answers. Mm. I don't know. I think I probably look a lot stronger. As long as the person who's making that judgment has the maturity to realize that some of this vulnerability indicates strength, not exhaustion. Yeah. I mean, we're back to obviously, you know, appropriate authenticity, right? I'm also thinking about what you said earlier about, I want to go back to the, what happens when you have power differentials that are too big. That's why so many founders in the Valley are so exhausted because they're carrying everything. And somehow they've got this idea that unless they come to somebody and say, hey, I could use some help here, they're going to appear weak. That's just broken. Right. So we have this mental model that the CEO or the founders need to carry everything. They need to control the information of the board, control the information of the employees, control the information of the customers. And they're the only ones who can know the weaknesses. Have all the answers, always be on top of it, always be optimistic. And you know what they do? They don't only exhaust themselves, they disempower their people. If you don't ever ask somebody to help you, then after a while, they don't think they've got much to bring to the party. Do you think the sort of founders tend to over-identify their personality and worth with the success of their startup? That's a great question. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing I've really, really just gotten even clearer about since starting Leaders in Tech is how almost unidentifiable from each other their own sense of worth, their identity, and their companies are. They are all one and the same. There are ways in which that serves them, and there are ways in which that is costly. Do you think that pressure makes diamonds? Meaning it is costly, but without that pressure cooker, they can't do the extraordinary things they need to do to take something from zero to something big? My very first boss used to say that which fire doesn't kill, it hardens. I think that's actually better than the diamond analogy, because you are taking the chance that you're going to kill it. And I'm not sure it's the only way. So I do think sometimes it needs that. I think that precisely because my experience with founders, and certainly I think one of the reasons leaders in tech has become something that's been so helpful to the founders that have been in our program is that it's one place where they can actually just breathe, talk about what's really going on for them and feel met, emotionally met. They don't feel that way by their boards. They don't feel that way by the people that work for them. They don't have anybody in their life who they can really be real with. Even when you set everything else aside is exhausting. So imagine adding that mm -hmm. to the exhaustion of everything they're carrying. Right. And have you found ways to help these founders change their mental models or techniques so that they can stop carrying the entire weight? And I mean, Leaders in Tech obviously is a great way to do it. Yeah. Having this sorority fraternity of people who are in the midst of this startup journey here in the Valley, yeah? Well, I think leaders in tech is one way. I think reading the book with a few other people is another way. Maybe read it with your executive team, for example. I think that there are so many opportunities. We get so stuck in our beliefs and assumptions that are outdated. 
I have to be this way. Because by the way, maybe it did serve you and then it stopped serving you. I know we're starting to run short on time, but I want to share an anecdote with you about when I was in my very first job and I was the first woman hired. And 10 years later, I was running, you know, this 13 Western state region. And I had all my guys at an offsite. I had not yet hired a woman, but I did shortly after this. But anyway, I'm there with my seven guys at two day offsite. I get all worked up because I'm really excited about something. I'm getting crickets. I finally just start to almost lose it. And one of my guys looks at me and he says to me, Carol, is that like water in the corner of your eye? Are you going to cry? And then he said, are you human after all? And then I burst out crying. And I said, you don't think I'm effing human? I don't think there's anything more important for us to talk about than that. And that's when we turned ourselves and I tore up our agenda and we spent the next two days talking about who we really were. And that's when we became a team. And to this day, that was a long time ago because I'm an old woman now, but to this day, I believe those men would follow me anywhere. Now, could I have busted out in tears the first year that I was on the job? No. But had I now over-indexed on being a certain way and not tested whether my mental model of how to be most effective was still serving me? No. Got it. So you knew that you had to show them that you were going to put food on the table. Yes. And once you had done that, then you can pull back on the throttle. Exactly. And by the way, at different points in time, people will follow you for different reasons. And by the way, different people will follow you for different reasons. One size doesn't fit all. That's what makes it both fascinating and sometimes extremely challenging. Yeah. Have you seen founders fighting with each other? Are there some examples that you can think of that, because it happens a lot, right? And it's hard and it hurts and it's scary. You know, how do you help some of them work through that? You know, there's a fair amount about this in the book too, which is how do you address what we call pinches before they become crunches? If you're doing something that's mildly annoying to me and I don't say anything to you, you'll keep doing it. And the more you do it, the more annoyed I'm going to get. And then the harder it's going to be to talk to you about it. So rule number one is establish some norms to address pinches when they're smaller. Instead, the tendency is, is to say, ah, it's not a big deal. Not a big deal, not a big deal, till it becomes a big deal. The second thing I'd say is that task conflict, which is, you know, should we roll out that new product line this year or next year? That's a very different kind of conflict than I don't ever feel heard from you. I don't feel acknowledged by you. I don't feel valued by you. Those kinds of conflicts are much more destructive to relationships. Interesting. And they're more destructive because because they create more and more distance. And the more distanced I feel from you, the less I want to invest in problem solving with you. The purpose of these conversations when we're having a conflict is to move into a problem solving conversation, which first has to start with getting curious about what's going on for each other, being committed to getting on the other side of it, not getting stuck with who's right and who's wrong. There's a lot in the book about that. Yeah, it's great stuff. And I guess you know, you've been working now with the Leaders in Training program, and you've coached all of these GSP students who've gone on to start these great companies. Are there tough conversations that you see coming up more frequently for startups? Yeah, between co-founders in particular. Not even just like with startups, like where do you spend most of your time? Where are the repetitive conversations that you have with people? Well, I'll tell you, one of the really big ones is how to create environments where people tell each other the truth and what gets in their way. And especially how to give, that's why there's a big section in the book about giving and receiving feedback well. And, you know, everybody's like, ah, I've had feedback training, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, most feedback training is just really 
basic and pretty marginal. It's an art and it requires curiosity. It requires not making up stories about what's going on for the other person so you don't make them defensive. It requires staying the course that the purpose is to move into problem solving. It requires making sure both of you know what your intent is. Some real basic stuff that when I say everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, of course, but how many people actually do that when they're in an argument? Not very many, right? But you know, I think a lot of people in startups are moving fast and hard. And sometimes I think it's very hard for them to think, wow, I can pay a little bit now, or I can pay a lot more later. They're like, I just can't afford to pay right now. Right. Yeah. It's almost as if you have to take time regularly to lay that foundation so that when things do get pinchy or worse, you can have enough space and breath to actually navigate skillfully. Yeah. Instead, they're very kind of circumspect or they're passive aggressive or, you know, they think I don't have time to give this person feedback. Well, you know what? There's nothing more efficient than the truth. And by the way, you know, if you establish a culture where people tell each other the truth, I said this before, you're going to have a far more sustainable, successful organization. Not to mention the fact you're actually going to grow and develop more. I think that's the other thing that happens, James, which is that in a startup, it's hard for managers to feel they've got the luxury to invest in other people, invest in their development. And yet that is one of the most important roles of a leader. People don't show up at your door fully developed. Otherwise, you've got to pay them more than you can afford. Right. So you've got to take people, all of us are works in progress, but people who are earlier on in their learning curve, Mm -hmm. and create an environment where they can see that they are moving down the learning curve. Exactly. Where you've shown them how to learn and how to mine their situations for learning. And that's hard. That's why a lot of people end up hiring coaches. And then, well, they should. Yeah. I've often thought that soccer coaches should make it clear. I'm not teaching you soccer. I mean, we'll be playing soccer, but I'm really teaching you leadership and I'm teaching tenacity and I'm teaching you practice. Discipline. <laughs> Discipline. I'm teaching you all these things. This is really what you're here for. Not actually for soccer. Exactly. And work is a little bit that way as well. Well, Carol, it is just a delight to talk to you. I'm so glad that you guys, after four years, have put this book together, Connect, that you and David Bradford have put this together. And I can't wait to read more of it and to implement it. It does take a while to read because there's so much going on here. And it's the most important stuff. Totally agree. So hopefully they'll all, you know, read the book, buy books, read them together. Eventually we'll have probably some kind of a two-day program that goes with the book. But for now, buy the book. Great. Carol Robin, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Just a delight to talk to you again. Take care. You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.